Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 8, Chapter 15, Machinery and Large-Scale Industry, First Part. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. Now, generally speaking, when people want to know about historical materialism and what Marx meant, they go to uh, the German ideology uh, as a text published in the late 1840s. And uh, it's true that that text, I think, gives uh, quite a few good pointers as to how we should differentiate historical materialism from idealism and other modes of understanding. Um, in recent times, however, uh, we've learned from the sort of Marx scholars that actually the German ideology was never a text. It was just a bunch of writings which somebody put together rather arbitrarily. And this has upset a lot of people who have relied very much on German ideology to understand principles of historical materialism. Uh, I found this is particularly true in China, where German ideology is a kind of a sacred text almost, and to say that it's not really a text uh, is quite earth-shattering. But I've always felt that if you wanted to understand historical materialism, uh, the best way to do it was to read Capital and watch what Marx does and to listen to how he unravels things and approaches things. And in Capital, of course, Marx does refer back to some previous texts. And right at the end of chapter one of Capital, Marx refers back uh, to his work on the critique of political economy. And he cites it in a footnote uh, on page 175. And he says, my view is that each particular mode of production and the relations of production corresponding to it at each given moment, in short, the economic structure of society is the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. And that the mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. Um, if you go back to the original, uh, in the Critique of Political Economy, and I won't read all of that out to you again, he then adds uh, some important uh, additional remarks. Uh, the changes in the economic foundation lead sooner or later to the transformation of the whole immense superstructure. In studying such transformations, it is always necessary to distinguish 
between the material transformation of the economic conditions of production, which can be determined with the precision of natural science, and the legal, political, religious, artistic, or philosophic, in short, ideological forms, in which men become conscious of this conflict and fight it out. Now, this is conventionally referred to as the base superstructure argument in which uh, the economic base uh, is seen by many as determining uh, what goes on in the superstructure. Uh, Marx doesn't use the word determining, he says conditionally. Uh, the mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. And I think it's different if you say conditions as opposed to uh, determines. But let's think about that for a moment and think about the argument that has been made uh, already in Capital. Marx is interested in, dis in uncovering what he calls the laws of motion uh, of Capital. And these laws of motion should be distinguished and put together in a way that uh, is familiar to those people who are concerned with the nature of natural history, of evolution. And we'll get to Darwin in, in a minute. But um, this uh, position uh, that, that he takes is one in which we have to start to look at how to unpack those laws of motion. Now, Marx starts with the material concept, which is the commodity. It's an idealized concept. It's the commodity in general, not a specific commodity. But he starts with that, and then unpacks what the commodity is about, use value, exchange value, value, recognizes that exchange can only function if there is a commodity which is going to facilitate exchange, and so you generate the idea of money. And again, notice how Marx generates that. Money does not arise because somebody sat in a room somewhere or other and decided money was a good thing and sort of threw money into the pot. It arose specifically out of material practices of exchange. Uh, exchange became so widespread that it became impossible to facilitate it without the money form. When the money form gets set up, Marx analyzes certain things about what can happen with the money form as a material uh, system, and looks at the different uses of money. Uh, and there are many of them, but one of them which is crucial is the fact that money can be used to make more money, which defines the circulation of capital. And then Marx asks these other questions about, well, how can you have an inequality of profit coming out of a system of exchange which is based on equality. The answer is there must be a commodity which has the capacity to produce more value than it itself has. That commodity is identified as labor power. You get into labor power, and uh, then you look and say, okay, well, labor can produce more value than it has, but for that to happen, the laborer has to work for more hours than it takes to actually reproduce the value of their own labor power, i.e. you have to lengthen the working day beyond uh, the hours taken up in the reproduction of labor power. So you get into the working day. 
Now, this argument is kind of proceeding in a way where at a certain point, the question of the working day starts to become a political issue. And this phrase about how uh, it's only in the superstructure where uh, legal, political, religious, artistic, or philosophic, uh, ideological forms in which people become conscious of the conflict and fight it out, that it's in the course of the conflict over the working day that people start to identify class interests, class con concepts. Uh, and, uh, but that doesn't mean it's all determined by the commodity, right? The economic structure is not determining, but it's setting up, it's conditioning, if you like, the, that situation in which the question over the length of the working day starts to become a very important political issue. And the state becomes involved, different classes become involved. So we get a story in the working day, which is precisely over this phrase, the working out and the ideological superstructure of something which is conditioned by the very laws of motion of capitalist society. And so this is what Marx means by historical materialist method, that what you do is you start to connect these elements together. And he then makes some, another point back in uh, the condition, the critique of political economy, uh, a very interesting sort of phrase, where he talks that, that when you get to something like the working day, and you're analyzing everything that's going on there and all of the class forces which are involved in the politics and so on, he says, the result is not simply a vicious circle of problems, chicken and egg type problems, where the solution of one problem presupposes the solution of the other, but a whole complex of contradictory premises since the fulfillment of one condition depends directly upon the fulfillment of its opposite. Now, what he's doing in this is using an analytical way, step by step, to start to look at this whole complex of contradictory premises. But he doesn't do that by, again, sitting in a room and dreaming them up. He's building them step by step out of the analysis and through the material conditions that he's seeing unraveling in society. So when he gets to the point of the working day, it's not as if he says, well, I pretend there's something called a working day. He doesn't have to do that because of struggles over the length of the working day, over a working week, over a working life, those struggles are going on around us all over the place. So it's not as if uh, he's discussing something which is some sort of idealist, utopian kind of thing. No, he's actually coming to the point of saying, you can only understand this struggle over the working day against the, those conditions which set the whole thing up. So if you really want to do something about the working day, you're going to have to go back to the original conditions and change the original conditions. And that's what Marx means by a revolutionary radical program. So at some point or other, he says, if you really want to get rid of all of this stuff which we're, we're seeing going around, you've got to abolish exchange value. And then when you kind of say to people, so Marx's revolutionary program is you abolish exchange value, people say, oh, that's nuts. There's no way you can do that. How can we possibly live in a society where there's no exchange value going on? 
But there, I think, is kind of, again, something interesting. We ask ourselves the question, are there certain things going on in society where exchange value is not admissible? Are there certain important aspects of a social order? And the answer is, yes, it's all over the place. There are prohibitions. For instance, there is a prohibition against slavery. You cannot buy and sell people. There's a prohibition against human trafficking. And then people say, well, you know. So there should be no human trafficking. When there is human trafficking, then society kind of says that that is something that is, should not be subject to the calculus of exchange value. And we can go across all sorts of areas. Exchanges of sexual services, prostitution, things of that kind. And in fact, we find a lot of areas where society says exchange value should not operate here. And when you say, well, okay, why stop at those areas? Why, why don't we go you know, even further? And say healthcare. Why shouldn't we take it out of the exchange value sphere? Why shouldn't we take education out of the health, out of the exchange value sphere? So when Marx kind of makes this point about what's the relationship between everything that's going on in society and the concept of exchange value, he's pointing to something which is a very real relation. And a very real relation that needs to be addressed politically. So when we get into certain areas of social life, you know, and, and what is also, of course, interesting is that all those areas which were thought to be outside of the sphere of exchange value, there's a constant pressure to bring, bring them inside the sphere. Exchange, exchange value of human organs, for example. There is a trade in kidneys. And there have been examples where, you know, people will pick up kids on the streets in Brazil and, you know, they become actually bearers of kidneys, which then go into... Now, this is, again, something that we would kind of revolt against, at least I hope we would, but there's, there's many areas of this kind where there's constant kind of battling over does this belong in the exchange value sphere or does it not? And this is a very interesting conversation, debate to have. But I think that it comes out of what Marx is doing by kind of saying, let's relate this idealized material moment of exchange and what exchange value is about and recognize that once you've decided that exchange value is okay, then a lot of things follow from it. And a lot of those things are very uncomfortable. If you don't like those uncomfortable things, then you've got to go back. Uh, to the original. So this is partly what Marx's historical materialism is about. But it's a historical materialism which is being built out of a study of the laws of motion of capital. And what we did in the theory of relative surplus value is to start to look at uh, different ways in which you can get surplus value through the dynamics of technological change. Now again, 
one of the things that you have to immediately have to ask yourself is if there are some uncomfortable things happening in the world of relative surplus value production and, and appropriation, then you have to go back to the question of technological change. And then ask the question, what kinds of technological changes are acceptable and what are not? And by the way, why is it that we think technological change is good? And why do we think that you can't stop it anyway? Again, there's a sort of ideological presuppositions. And when Marx talks about the ideological superstructure, he's talking about the arguments we would have about these things. Now, because it's a superstructure, it doesn't mean it's irrelevant. In other words, Marx is what, what, you, what you see in the, in the text and you see in the argument over the length of the working day, for example, and how limitation got put on it. You wouldn't say that's somehow or other secondary. That the real issue is in the economic base and therefore, oh, don't bother with all that stuff about struggling over the length of the working day. That's not what Marx is doing here. He's seeing it as integral, conditioned, one conditioning the other. And of course, once you start to actually control the length of the working day and limit the length of the working day, you can even push it so that the working day becomes, as I mentioned when we were talking about this, a sort of revolutionary. Because you kind of say, well, we want a working day of one hour. That's the demand. Can we organize society? And with artificial intelligence and all the rest of it, why not? We might be able to do that. But if we do that, then the laws of motion of capital we're talking about really go wacky. And the whole system goes wacky. So Marx's historical materialism then is an attempt to sort of gradually step by step unravel what some of these contradictory premises and contradictory relations are. And so far we've been on a sort of a one way of looking at, at things. But then when we get to the chapter on machinery, he does something which is really again, quite, quite different. That is, he starts to suggest that we're not only dealing with use value and exchange value and value and the, the kinds of arguments earlier, there's a, there's a much more complex kind of picture. And what you see in capital is Marx being, building layer after layer of complexity into his arguments, dealing with the contradictory premises, and it's plural. And this is very much laid out in a foot, this footnote, which I suggested you look at on 493. Uh, footnote 4. Where Marx starts off by saying, we should have a critical history of technology. Notice, it's a critical history of technology. It's not just a history of technology. And what that critical history of technology would show, he says, how little any of the inventions of the 18th century are the work of a single individual. As yet, such a book does not exist. <clears throat> and then he goes on, Darwin has directed attention to the history of natural technology, i.e. the formation of the organs of plants and animals which serve as the instruments of production for sustaining their life. Does not the history of the productive organs of man in society 
of organs that are the material basis of every particular organization of society deserve equal attention. And would not such a history be easier to compile since, as Vico says, human history differs from natural history in that we have made the former but not the latter? Vico's position was that natural history was something which was really determined by God and there was no way in which human beings could really understand what God was doing. God works in mysterious ways. But our own society is something that we have made and therefore we could understand it. So Vico was kind of saying we're much better positioned to understand our own history than we are to understand natural history. Now, this relation to Darwin is something that's very important in, in Marx. Uh, from the very be beginning, we've seen that Darwin uh, is a, is, sort of lurks in the background, that what Marx wants to do is to actually have a history of capital which has the same sort of allure as natural history. And he says in one of his uh, prefaces, uh, my standpoint from which the development of the economic formation of society is viewed as a process of natural history. So again, he wants it, in a sense, the history of capital to be a chapter in the history of uh, a natural history, but a, a different kind of chapter, uh, precisely because it will be about what we have made uh, and to the degree that our activities have been purposive and, intense and intentional, we can understand why we've got to where we've got in the ways that we can't understand why natural history is evolving uh, in the sense of uh, uh, evolutionary, evolutionary trajectories. But Marx was not, while well, he was an admirer of Darwin, Marx was not uh, totally infatuated with everything that Darwin did. Uh, he sort of writes in amusing ways about how it's interesting, he says, Darwin suddenly starts to recognize around him in the natural world all of those elements that he was observing in capitalistic Britain. That is... Uh, the struggle for existence, uh, the whole kind of question, divisions of labor, specializations of function, things of that kind. In other words, many of the elements within Darwin uh, came out of a consciousness and a sensitivity uh, to the practices of British industrialism, which Darwin was very, very familiar with because he was married to the daughter of uh, a Wedgwood, which is the big pottery master, and therefore came from a, a family which had a background in industrial organization. Uh, secondly, Darwin also said, right at the very beginning of uh, The Origin of Species, that he was looking at all of this data he had and he couldn't make sense of it until he read Malthus. Well, Malthus was a social theorist. And Malthus was writing about you know, social processes, population, and all the rest of it, and writing about political economy. 
So Darwin transferred, if you like, Malthusian thinking into his interpretation of the origin of species. And you get a lot of the categories, uh, the fundamental categories of the origin of species, which attach to, of course, British industrial practices. And then a funny thing kind of happened. Darwin wrote this whole thing about how, and then, of course, along at the end of the century came social Darwinism, where suddenly uh, all, all the social thinkers naturalized what capitalism was about because Darwin had naturalized it in the origin of species, failing to recognize that Darwin had actually been guided by a metaphor taken from the social sciences. So you get this social science metaphor which comes in and Darwin adopts it and then it then gets naturalized. So social Darwinism kind of says capitalism is natural. And there's nothing that can stop. Uh, we can't change it because, you know, we can do all kinds of things to, to manage it, but we can never change it because that would be changing nature. Uh, now, the interesting thing here is that uh, the, there was a whole group of... Uh, uh, Russian evolutionists who couldn't understand why Darwin was always going on about the, the particular structure of, uh, you know, adaptation and survival of the fittest and all the rest of it. And the reason being, of course, that uh, Russian evolutionists were thinking about peasant society and, and, and the like, uh, and they produced a completely different theory of evolution, one which was based on cooperation and mutual aid, and one of the key figures in that was Kropotkin. So Kropotkin came out of a, an evolutionary tradition which was not based in English industrialism, but in mutual aid in peasant societies. And the Russian evolutionists would look at the species in the tundra and say, they're not competing with each other. They're collaborating and cooperating with each other. Mutual aid is going on, and, and, and therefore mutual aid is more foundational than competition. And so there's all this kind of grand debate around uh, Marx and Darwin and, and uh, Darwin's reliance upon this metaphor drawn from English industrialism. Uh, so Marx was clearly aware of that and was critical about it. At the same time, he recognized that Darwin had understood through some of his categories what was going on in British industrialism. This is the peculiar... And, 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 and Marx you know, says, well, actually, Darwin has, has unplugged a lot of the things we should understand about industrialism. So he's setting up here this, this whole kind of relation to Darwin. And of course, uh, Marx reputedly sent a copy of Volume 1 of Capital over to Darwin, and Darwin didn't accept it. Uh, but uh, if any of you have seen the, the play on Meet the Young Marx, there's a hilarious set of scenes about Marx trying to present the capital to, to, to Darwin. The second part of this thing is much, it is to me much more important. And this is typical of Marx. He puts something terribly important in just such a cryptic way that you can easily miss it. Technology reveals the active relation of man to nature, the direct process of the production of his life, and thereby it also lays bare the process of the production of the social relations of his life and of the mental conceptions 
that flow from these relate from those relations. Now, Marx is often described as being a technological determinist. And but I'd like to point out that Mar the language here is reveals. In other translations, discloses. Technology reveals. It doesn't determine. It reveals. And the active relation of man to nature. So Marx is saying that the metabolic relation to nature, remember that's part of the general schema we're looking at, the metabolic relation to nature, which is a key element of a uh, which goes on in terms of the labor process and you remember the argument in the labor process that in transforming the natural world, we transform ourselves, and transforming ourselves, we transform the natural world, and that dialectical relation. Okay, but that dialectical relation between human beings transforming the world is mediated through the technologies. The technology changes the nature of the metabolic relation. And, but at the same time, that doesn't mean the metabolic relation is determined by. So there's a mediating element there, which is technology. And when Marx says technology reveals or discloses, it's like saying, okay, if you study technology very closely, then you can't understand it without understanding what it's doing in relationship to the metabolic relation to nature. And you'll find a lot about the relation to nature by studying technology. Conversely, if you study the relation to nature, you'll find a lot about technologies. In other words, there's a relational connection here. It's not that one determines the other. That they are integral to each other in the way the labor process described. But the technology obviously is a condition, it conditions. At the same time as the study of it reveals. But it doesn't only do that, the study of the technology also re reveals a lot about the direct process of the production of his life. That is, the technology reveals much about the mode of production, the capitalist mode of production. But you can broaden this and say it's not simply the capitalist mode of production, but also the mode of production of his life. That is, social reproduction. So, what's tech? So, you study technology and then you understand much more about social relations and much more about daily life and much more about production process, mode of production. And Marx continues, thereby it also lays bare the process of production of social relations of his life and of the mental conceptions that flow from those relations. To what degree are our mental conceptions affected by the kinds of technologies that surround us? How do we understand the world before there were, say, microscopes and telescopes and things of that kind? No, we see the world differently because of the technological capacities that we have. And a lot of what capital's been about is a radical transformation 
of how we see the world, how we see evolutionary processes. When people got hold of DNA, then all of a sudden everything gets changed. So our mental conceptions of the world are not independent of the technologies. But then, remember in the chapter on the labor process, what separates the worst of architects and the best of bees? The architect erect, erected something in imagination before making it real. So there's a point where mental conceptions actually integrate. I mean, it wasn't as if somehow or other, you know, let's say, telescopes or microscopes dropped out of the air. No, somebody had an idea that you could do something. They saw a piece of glass and they saw it magnified. Or it, they said, well, maybe go and play with this. And so the relation, all of these elements are relational with each other. They're all conditional one upon the other. You cannot change the technology without changing mental conceptions of the world. You cannot change mental conceptions of the world without changing the technologies. So the way I would look at this is to say that Marx is actually setting up an understanding of the totality. And the totality incorporates these five or, let's say, six elements. And in my own work, I incorporate a, a seventh, which is not mentioned here, which is institutional arrangements. Private property, etc., etc. But again, notice, the institutional arrangements again, are not dreamed up in an office somewhere. They are sometimes, but the basic ones arise out in a different kind of way. For instance, in, in Capital, it's interesting that Marx sets up the commodity and commodity exchange before he takes up the question of private property. Now, most people, when they think about capital, think that private property preceded. But Marx turns it the other way around and says, it was only through commodity exchange that something like private property became significant. When we all shared all you know, primitive kind of world, we all shared everything together and this kind of thing, there was no private property. Didn't need private property because there was no exchange relations going on. Exchange relations start going on and I have this and it has to belong to me in order that I exchange it to you. So actually private property arises out of exchange. Exchange is not based upon private property. It's the other way around. Exchange set up private property. But once private property is established, then it comes back and, and alters fundamentally structures of exchange. And this is, again, comes back to that little thing about how the premises, the contradictory premises of private property and exchange, and that you can't have one without the other, and that they're contradictory in some way. So Marxist historical materialism then is built step by step on this kind of procedure. Now the way I deal with this 
is I kind of say, all right, let's imagine that the totality is made up of, say, seven moments of the social process, as Marx calls them. And the seven are the technology, the, the relation to nature, the mode of production in the physical kind of sense, the mode of social reproduction, the social relations, and the mental conceptions of the world. And you imagine all of those moments together. And you then say, what is a revolutionary movement? Which is what Marx talked about back in Critique of Political Economy. The revolutionary moment means all of these elements have to change. They all have to change in relation to each other. And you want to change one, you can't do it without recognizing it's how much it is conditioned by all of the others, and you've got to change all of the others. We want to solve, we want to solve we've got a, a problem about the relation to nature called global warming. How many people think there's a single bullet answer, which is technological change? Marx would say that's ridiculous. One of the biggest barriers to doing anything about climate change is mental conceptions of the world. We've got to change mental conceptions. Social relations have to change. So you have to think about all of those elements together. And it's interesting, in the social sciences, there is a tremendous interest in what you might call single-bullet theories of social change. There is technological determinism. You know, Mr. Flat Earth Friedman is full of that. Then there are environmental. Jared Diamond. All that stuff. About guns, germs, and steel. Environmental determinism. So it's a relation to nature that determines everything else. A lot of Marxists say class struggle. Idealists will say, well, just you know, change the mentalities and then everything will change. Then there are the institutionalists who say, well, it's institutions that really matter. Marx's point is that all of them matter in relation to each other. And a historical materialist investigation of capitalist society is about trying to understand all of these relations. Now, if you bear this in mind, in the rest of this chapter, you'll find all of these elements appear at certain points. When, for example, machine technology took over, it generated forms of knowledge, science and technology, which was a different way of knowing the world. In feudal times, everything was alive. What capital does is to make it dead and exploit it for something that's dead. Then, of course, it means a certain relation to nature. Descartes started talking about the domination of nature. 
that you could dominate it. And the whole thesis of the domination of nature became critical to the development of bourgeois society. Of course, there were always a few people around who said, you must be nuts to think you can do that. But I think what Marx has done is to set up a framework here. And if you read this chapter on machinery and large-scale industry, which is very long and, you know, and look at the elements within this, what you see are these features coming together at various points and saying, ah, the whole thing about machinery was that the power source was taken outside. Therefore, physical power doesn't matter so much anymore. And this allowed for factories to be developed using women and children as labor. Very young children. Because they didn't need the massive power that we required physically to make a machine work. So the social relations. Marx then talks about how the whole structure of the family changed as a result of the machine, you know, in relation to the machine technology. But the machine technology is at the same time kind of saying, okay, how can we use this in a way to use that kind of labor in a different kind of way? So this, what I would call... I'll expand it, this seven-point kind of configuration of how we should understand the totality of a capitalist mode of production seems to me to be extremely interesting, extremely powerful. And to me, it also, I think, says something about why it is that so many revolutionary movements have failed. Because almost invariably, there is a, a revolutionary movement has a, either a single or a very narrow kind of conception. But if you try to make a revolutionary movement without changing anybody's mental conceptions, forget it. And I think the whole dialectical way in which Marx sets this in motion is, is a fascinating reflection on how to understand the dynamics of a capitalist society. But Marx then con considers this further. And continues the footnote. It is in reality, he says, and this is where we come back to the question of what is historical materialism, it is, in reality, much easier to discover by analysis the earthly kernel of the mystic creations of religion than to do the opposite, i.e., to develop from the actual given relations of life the forms in which these have been apotheosized. The latter method is the only materialist and therefore the only scientific one. The weakness of the abstract materialism of natural science a materialism which excludes the historical process, are immediately evident from the abstract and ideological conceptions expressed by its spokesman 
whenever they venture beyond the bounds of their own speciality. Marx is a materialist, but he's not a natural materialist. He's a historical materialist. And of course, it's interesting that since Marx wrote, when you start to look at some of the work that followed on Kuhn's structure of revolutions or Feyerabend and so on, you start to see a lot more discussion of uh, the social conditions under which certain scientific understandings are possible. And when the social conditions change, so those possibilities change. But natural scientists themselves are often very difficult, very, uh, very reluctant uh, to deal with that. The idea that there are scientific paradigms and that they're very different from each other. And actually Engels kind of commented on Marx and the theory of surplus value. And he kind of said, you know, all the discussion about oxygen. And he used that as an analogy for saying, you know, Marx took the same materials looking at and gave a radically different interpretation through his historical materialist method of how capital works than the classical political economists. So this notion of that, that Marx is laying out in this footnote is, I think, very important to understand the nature of his argument throughout the whole of capital. If you bear this in mind, you get a very different understanding of capital than if you're looking for one economic deterministic kind of argument. You could read capital and say, yeah, he's an economic determinist. But I think that actually, when you look at what he's doing, I don't think it's his economic determinism at all. This is about an evolutionary process in which simultaneously all of these elements, mental conceptions, social relations, production systems, relations to nature, technologies, and so on, all of them are Im implicated in the way in which society gets transformed. And I like to think about this, I think about, well, how did, how did, what happened with the rise of neoliberalism from the 1970s onwards? So when I was writing about that, I was thinking about, okay, what are these elements all together? Was it simply technological changes? Well, there were a lot of organizational changes, in particular deregulation, in particular you know, global, global, what we call globalization, and a lot of, lot of new technologies began to enter in. Small batch production technologies suddenly started to displace mass production technologies of the, of the traditional Fordist factory. So there are a lot of technological dynamism, there's a lot of technological dynamism of, which was involved in the rise of the neoliberal order. But also, Margaret Thatcher, what did she say? She said, look, she says, you can change the economy, but I'm trying to change 
people's mentalities, how they think, how they are, what their emotional states are about. I am going to change the soul, she said. And, and she was pretty effective at that. She really was. She was a revolutionary thinker and she understood that you could change all these other things, but if you didn't change mentalities, and the mentality was towards a mentality of individualism and self-sufficiency and personal responsibility. If you got sick, you need to take care of yourself. If you're unemployed, it's because you didn't invest in your own cultural capital and education. So when you think about the transformations that have occurred, social reproduction processes. It's a great book by Melinda Cooper on you know, what happened to social reproduction processes in the neoliberal era. But the trouble with Melinda Cooper is that she thinks this is the only thing that matters. And if you take any one of these elements, it looks as if that is one that really matters. Other people say it was a change of ideas. There are several books out now which say neoliberalism was simply a change of ideas. There are others who kind of say, well, it was a change of social relations. It was a change of mental conceptions of technology. You know. But I actually think if you want to write the history of you know, a transformation called neoliberalism, which is sort of what I tried to do in the book on neoliberalism, I was kind of saying, look, you've got to look at all of this. Some things stand out as being more significant and more important in a particular historical era. One or other of these elements can be in the forefront. There's no question that there are times when ideas get out in front of everything else. But those ideas don't last if they're not implanted in social relations and all the rest of it. So, again, the historical materialist method is an attempt to understand those dynamisms, but to understand things against this background that Marx is trying to sketch in here. And that's why I think in reading this chapter on machinery, it's very important to watch for, okay, this is about technology. What's it saying about metabolic relations? You find a whole chunk on that. What's it saying about family relations? You find a whole chunk on that. What's it saying about mental conceptions of the relation to nature? It's a whole chunk on that. All of these elements are there. So when somebody comes along and says, oh, this is really about technological determinism, the answer is, no, no, it's not. Of course it's not. And that's not what Marx, is, it seems to me, is, is, is looking for. So I think that the whole structure of the book and the whole structure of Marx's project is to try to get behind these different elements, all of which coexist. And I think it's important if you kind of, when you set it up, if you, the way I do in my mind, which is say, okay, we can look at technology, we can look at the relation to nature. It's not as if the relation to nature is static. Each one of these elements, ideas, relation to nature, technologies, there's a certain autonomy. And the autonomy is such that it moves of its own accord. It is not determined by everything else. It's conditioned by everything else. 
So there are transformations going on in relation to nature, in the natural world, if you want to call it that. Transformations going on, which are not determined by human action. New pathogens emerge. All kinds of, you know, evolutionary processes are at work. I think, again, the same would be true of ideas. It's not as if ideas are completely constrained. People are thinking about different things all the time. Most of the time doesn't mean anything, but something can come along and something can suddenly spark something and suddenly woof. So each one of these elements is autonomous, but and internally related to all the other elements. You get a good idea. The idea is we're going to create a socialist society. Okay, and you've got a utopian vision as to what that socialist society is going to be look like. Look like. What do you have to do to make that idea real? Well, you've got to start changing all of these other elements, and all these other elements have to conform. Good luck. It's a bit of a hard job just to do it that way. And in fact, many people have tried and failed. Most utopian communes just collapse after you know, one generation, if they don't collapse in six weeks. So. This is, this is, if you like, the, the, the core of what Marx is about. And this is what I would hope you would get out of reading Capital in a constructive kind of interesting way. So let's then get into the first, uh, I suggested you look at the first three parts of uh, and so the, what we're going to look at then is the development of machinery. And here you see immediately Marx is talking about something called the Industrial Revolution. Now, it, before this, people didn't really use that sort of term. But Marx talks about the Industrial Revolution. And he's a, he's a theorist of the Industrial Revolution. What was the Industrial Revolution all about? Was there an Industrial Revolution? And his answer was, yes, there was. And the Industrial Revolution was a transformation of the tool or workshop kind of technology into something much bigger and much more systematic. At what point did implements as he puts it, but attain the stature of machines. And was it possible for this to happen without a revolution in the mode of production? And interestingly, he sort of starts off by pointing out that the, the, the steam engine itself, this is on 496, such as it was at its invention during the manufacturing period, the close of the 17th century, did not give rise to any industrial revolution. What does characterize the industrial revolution, he says, is the machine 
which is the starting point of the Industrial Revolution, replaces the worker, who handles a single tool, by a mechanism operating with a number of similar tools and set in motion by a single motive power, whatever the form of that power. Here we have the machine, but in its first role as a simple element in production by machinery. So he tries then to put together a picture of how implements and tools got incorporated into something that had a mechanical character. This transformation, he says, this is a 501, an essential difference at once appears. In manufacture, it is the workers who either singly or in groups must carry on each particular process with their manual implements. The worker has been appropriated by the process, but the process had previously to be adapted to the worker. This subjective principle of the division of labor no longer exists in production by machinery. Here, the total process is examined objectively, viewed in and for itself, and analyzed into its constitutive phases. The problem of how to execute each particular process and to bind the different partial processes together into a whole is solved by the aid of machines chemistry. The collective working machine, which is now an articulated system composed of various kinds of single machine, of groups of single machines, becomes all the more perfect the more the process as a whole becomes a continuous one. Out of this comes the vision of the machine as a vast automaton. And then he, on 503, he says, as an example both of continuity of production and implementation of the automatic principle, we may take a modern paper mill. In the paper industry generally, we may advantageously study in detail not only the distinctions between modes of production based on different means of production, but also the connection between the social relations of production and those modes of production. Notice technology, social relations. And he then talks about German uh, old system. Bottom of 503. An organized system of machines to which motion is communicated by the transmitting mechanism with an automatic center is the most developed form of production by machinery. Here we have, in place of the isolated machine, a mechanical monster whose body fills whole factories and whose demonic power at first hidden by the slow and measured motions of its gigantic members, finally burst forth in the fast and feverish whirl of its countless working organs. The speed of production is now no longer in the, in the, under the control of the worker. The machine now controls speed. Then he goes on. There were mules and steam engines before there were any workers exclusively occupied in making mules and steam engines. And then he talks about those who started to invent. It was invention by the skilled mechanical workers that was absolutely crucial. And what this meant was when the system had attained a certain degree of development, this is on 504, 
it had to overthrow its ready-made foundation, that is, the manufacturing system, which had meanwhile undergone further development in its old form and create for itself a new basis appropriate, appropriate to its own mode of production. So the machine, the mode of production, and the social relations are all tra being transformed. The machine owed its existence to personal strength and personal skill and depended on the muscular development, the keenness of sight and manual dexterity, with which specialized workers in manufacture and the handicraftsmen outside manufacture wielded their dwarf-like implements. The expansion of industries carried on by means of machinery and the invasion of fresh branches of production by machinery were dependent on the growth of a class of workers so we're now getting a class formation, who, owing to the semi-artistic nature of their employment, could increase their numbers only gradually and not by leaps and bounds. But beside this, at a certain stage of its development, large-scale industry also came into conflict with the technical basis provided for it by handicrafts and manufacture. So he's talking about the way in which machines are beginning to take over the role of labor and turn labor into something which is radically different. Radically different experience, radically different social relations. But it doesn't occur all at once. It's a gradual displacement, gradual transformation. And within this, there are certain groups of workers who emerge as innovators. Because a lot of this work is being done by the workmen themselves. The semi-artistic growth of a class of workers who are concerned with changing productivity. But what this means is this also. This is 505. The transformation of the mode of production in one sphere of industry necessitates a similar transformation in other spheres. This happens at first in branches of industry which are connected together by being separate phases of a process, and yet isolated by the social division of labor, in such a way that each of them produces an independent commodity. Thus, machine spinning made machine weaving necessary, and both together made a mechanical and chemical revolution compulsory in bleaching, printing, and dyeing. That is, given the divisions of labor, and the whole structure of inputs and outputs that was going on, you couldn't have an ev a machine production occurring here without actually having parallel inventions going on over there. The revolution in cotton spinning, he said, called forth the invention of the cotton gin for separating the seeds from the, the cotton fiber. It was only by means of this invention that the production of cotton became possible on the enormous scale at present required. But as well as this, the revolution in the modes of production of industry and agriculture made necessary a revolution in the general conditions of the social process of production, in the means of communication and transport. And then he talks about some of this. In the same way, the means of communication and transport handed down from the period of manufacture soon became unbearable fetters on large-scale industry. Given the feverish velocity with which it produces its enormous extent, its constant flinging of capital and labor from one sphere of production into another, and its newly created connections with the world market. Hence, 
quite apart from the immense transformation which took place in shipbuilding, the means of communication and transport, and, and transport gradually adapted themselves to the mode of production of large-scale industry by means of a system of river steamers, railways, ocean steamers, and telegraphs. We often think of technological change as actually being the result of an individual in, inventor or something of this kind. But what Marx is talking about here is kind of saying technological changes in this sphere actually put immense pressure upon parallel technological changes in another sphere. If the cotton gin had not been invented, the cotton industry would have just collapsed, even though the cotton industry itself had become highly mechanized. And he then kind of comments about this. But the huge masses of iron that had now to be forged, welded, cut, bored, and shaped required for their part machines of a cyclopean dimensions, which the machine building trades of the period of manufacture were incapable of constructing. And here comes the big thing. Large-scale industry, therefore, had to take over the machine itself, its own characteristic instrument of production, and to produce machines by means of machines. It was not till it did this that it could create for itself an adequate technical foundation and stand on its own feet. At the same time as machine production was becoming more general, in the first decades of the 19th century, it gradually took over the construction of the machines themselves. That is, the machine tool industry arises. And you start to make machines by machines. Now, the argument here is that, as you remember, when we're dealing with the handicraft and manufacturing phase, that it reached a point where it could go no further. It had this immense erection, sort of fantastic kind of structure to try to accommodate. But capital had not invented its own distinctive technology which was going to be the technology of a capitalist mode of production. And now it has done so. And that technology is a technology in which machines are used to produce machines. And this is Marx saying, finally, capital defines a technology which is adequate to its capacities and its purpose. Now, this doesn't sound like technology de determining, does it? This sounds like capital has been lo looking every way to find a technology which will actually fit its social relations and fit its dynamism and all the rest of it. And finally, it found it. So instead of technology leading the transition from feudalism into capitalism, the technology is the final moment where capital actually comes to be itself through this industrial revolution and technological revolution. The most essential condition for the production of machines by machines was a prime mover capable of exerting any amount of force while retaining perfect control. 
The steam engine already fulfilled this condition. Remember, the steam engine didn't lead into the creation of this new technology. But the steam engine is perfect for the way this technology is going to be orchestrated and organized. So this is the story that Marx is, is, is telling here. But this has other implications. Right towards the end of this first section, he says, as machinery, the instrument of labor assumes a material mode of existence which necessitates the replacement of human force by natural forces and the replacement of the rule of thumb by the conscious application of natural sciences, knowledge, mental conceptions. In manufacture, the organization of the social labor process is purely subjective. It is a combination of specialized workers. Large-scale industry, on the other hand, possesses in the machine system an entirely objective organization of production, which confronts the worker as a pre-existing material condition of production. In simple cooperation, and even in the more specialized forms of the division of labor, the extrusion of the isolated worker by the associated worker still appears to be more or less accidental. Machinery, with few exceptions to be mentioned later, operates only by means of associated labor, a radical transformation of social relations. Hence, the cooperative character of the labor process is in this case a technical necessity dictated by the very nature of the instrument of nature. So what's involved here is that capital is striving to find a way to develop a technology which is unique to its requirements. It does so bit by bit, but we then see a situation where there are spillover effects. Technological changes here require technological changes there. And the spillover effects become widespread. And suddenly the whole society becomes industrialized, including means of communication and transportation and mining and all the rest of it. And that means that there's an objective character to the production system. It's no longer a skill which is sort of learned at the, the foot of a, of a skilled laborer. It's no longer a skill. It's just simply a way in which labor is now employed by the machine rather than labor using the machine. Whereas the laborer uses the implements and commands the implements, now the machine has been a reversal. And that reversal is also connected with the application of natural science and technology. So production is no longer an art, but it's a science and a technology. Back in the feudal period, production was considered an art. And it was mysterious. Nobody knew exactly. But by the time you get to machine technology, it's no longer an art. 
It's a technology and a science. Transformation of mental conceptions, right? So already in this first section, not only have we seen technologies, but we've also seen transformation of mode of production, of the, of the mental conceptions, and the social relations. And of the social relations in relationship to the technology and all the rest of it. In other words, this very first section is invoking different elements of that integrated picture that I already mentioned. The second part poses the problem of how is the value of the machine transferred to the product? By the way, there is this footnote on 508. Science, generally speaking, costs the capitalist nothing, a fact that by no means prevents him from exploiting it. Alien science is incorporated by capital just as alien labor is. But capitalist appropriation and personal appropriation, whether of science or of material wealth, are totally different things. Anyway, section two, the value transferred. I here makes something very clear, and it's problematic, or often problematic. He says on 509, capital now sets the worker to work, not with a manual tool, but with a machine which itself handles the tools. Therefore, although it is clear at the first glance that large-scale industry raises the productivity of labor to an extraordinary degree by incorporating into the production process both the immense forces of nature and the results arrived at by natural science, it is by no means equally clear that this increase in productive force is not on the other hand, purchased with an increase in the amount of labor expended. Machinery, like every other component of constant capital, creates no new value. Underline it. Machinery creates no new value. I said a third time. Machinery creates no new value. But, says Marx, it yields up its own value to the product it serves to beget. So some of the value in, embodied in the machine is transferred to the product. Now, how is that done? That is not a material process. Because it's not as if bits of the machine, and you count the bits of the machine that flow into the cotton. You can't do that. But the value of the machine is transferred when there's no material movement. It is crystal clear, he says, that machines and systems of machinery, large-scale industries, characteristic instruments of labor, are incomparably more loaded with value than the implements used in handicrafts and manufacture. The machine incorporates more value because of the labor incorporated in it than laborers holding a bunch of spades or, or or whatever. So, how do we deal with this? In the first place, it must be observed that machinery, while always entering as a whole into the labor process, enters only piece by piece into the process of valorization. It never adds more value than it loses, on an average, by depreciation. So he's introducing here the notion of the depreciation of the machine over a period of time. 
Hence, there is a great difference between the value of a machine and the value transferred in a given time by the machine to the product. Here we go into a straight line depreciation argument, which is if the machine is going to last for 10 years, then one-tenth of the value of the machine is transferred into the product in the first year, another tenth in the next year, and after 10 years, the whole value of the machine has gone into the product. So it's one, you know, depending upon the lifetime of the machine. The lifetime is 10 years, which life is 20 years, whichever way. So that's fairly sort of uh, straight, straightforward, and I'm not going to go uh, much, much further with it. But there is an interesting kind of calculation which Marx sets up about when is it worthwhile using a machine as opposed to using labor. Because if the machine displaces labor, and you save a lot of labor, then at what point do you say, okay, there's no point in me going even further in mechanization because I'm not saving labor anymore. And he introduces a rule here on 513, which is actually has important historical significance. It is evident, he says, that whenever it costs as much labor to produce a machine as is saved by the employment of that machine, all that has taken place is a displacement of labor. Consequently, the total labor required to produce a commodity has not been lessened. In other words, the productivity of labor has not been increased. So it's important to look then at the difference between the labor a machine costs and the labor it saves. In other words, the degree of productivity the machine possesses does not depend on the difference between its own value and the value of the tool it replaces. The productivity of the machine is therefore measured by the human labor power it replaces. And then he gives some examples. Before we get there, however, there is an interesting footnote on 5.12 to 5.13, in which he sets up, again, about capitalism, but this is about Descartes. At the bottom of 5.12, he says, Descartes, like Bacon, thought that the altered methods of thought would result in an alteration in the shape of production and the practical subjugation of nature by man. And then there's a quotation from Descartes' discourse of, on method. It is possible to attain knowledge very useful in life and in place of speculative philosophy taught in the schools, one can find a practical philosophy by which, given that we know the powers and the effectiveness of fire, water, air, and stars, and all the other bodies that surround us, as well as, accurately as we know, the various trades of our craftsmen, we shall be able to employ them in the same manner as the latter to all those uses to which they are adapted, and thus, as it were, make ourselves the masters and possessors of nature. That is, the idea of the mastery of nature becomes rather important, but could not be envisaged before we started to get towards mechanical understandings of the world. 
But the rule about the employment of machines in relationship to labor is important. And he elaborates it on 5.15 in the following way. The use of machinery for the exclusive purpose of cheapening the product is limited by the requirement that less labor must be expended in producing the machinery than is displaced by the employment of that machinery. For the capitalist, however, there is a further limit on its use. Instead of paying for the labor, he pays only the value of the labor power employed. The limit to his using a machine is therefore fixed by the difference between the value of the machine and the value of the labor power replaced by it. Okay, read that again. The limit to his using a machine is fixed by the difference between the value of the machine and the value of the labor power replaced by it. This, uh, by the way, is helpful for understanding certain practices of reverse engineering uh, that were characteristic, not so much anymore, but were characteristic in China uh, during the 1990s, in which very expensive machinery was brought in. But labor was so cheap that the best things the Chinese could do was to reverse engineer the machine and actually disassemble the machine so that you actually displaced the machine by labor. And, you, you know, I mean, the cost of the machine was so huge and they, bought, you know, they could go and get another machine or they could do a reverse engineering on the machine and then set up a production process that was entirely about human labor and not about machinery at all. That's because there were surpluses of labor. And labor was dirt cheap. The machines were extremely expensive, given the exchange rates and all the rest of it. So there was a lot of reverse engineering going on in, in China during the 1990s, 2000, maybe. Precisely because this calculus, and, and actually this calculus becomes important uh, in, even in, the, in Marx's time, because uh, he says, uh, when you look at the pressure of competition, and this is on 5.16, he says, hence the invention nowadays in England of machines that are employed only in North America. North American industrialization was a situation where there was scarcity of labor. Britain when Marx was writing, had an abundance of unemployed labor. So as machine was invented, British industrialists kind of looked at it and said, it's, this is too expensive relative to the cost of the machine, you know, labor. But in the United States, where labor was very expensive, the machine was con considered, you know, a good deal. So you get, according to Marx, a tendency to apply the innovation in that place where there is labor scarcity. And you don't apply it where there's labor, sur labor surpluses. So there's a differential in the deployment of machines depending upon that calculus. And uh, and then he has some stuff about the, the machine when as he puts it, from the standpoint of the capitalist, in, those, uh, in several branches of industries, from the standpoint of capitalist, the use of machinery was superfluous and often impossible. 
because his profit came from a reduction in the labour paid for, not in the labour employed. The Factory Act, and then he talks about that, and, uh, and hence the substitution of machinery for the half-timers. Before the labour of women and children under 10 years old was forbidden in mines, the capitalists considered the employment of naked women and girls, often in company with men, so far sanctioned by their moral code and especially by their ledgers. It was only after the passing of the Factory Act that they had recourse to machinery. The Yankees have invented a stone-breaking machine. The English do not make use of it because the wretch who does this work gets paid for such a small portion of his labour that machinery would increase the cost of production to the capitalist. In England, women are still occasionally used instead of horses for hauling barges because the labour required to produce horses and machines is an accurately known quantity, while that required to maintain the women of the surplus population is beneath all calculation. Hence, we nowhere find a more shameless squandering of human labour power for despicable purposes than in England, the land of machinery. So the calculus about transformation of, uh, you know, the, the deployment of machines. But remember, machines cannot produce value. They are important for a variety of reasons, but machines do not produce value. Section three the most immediate effects of machine production on the worker. And there are a whole series of issues here. Appropriation of supplementary labour power by capital, the employment of women and children. I've already briefly mentioned that. Uh, again, women and children could operate machinery in ways that they couldn't uh, operate if they needed their own physical uh, power to, 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 to work things. Uh, but when this happens, something else happened. Uh, machinery, says Marx on 519, also revolutionizes and quite fundamentally the agency through which capital relation is formally mediated, i.e. the contract between the worker and the capitalist. Taking the exchange of commodities as our basis, our first assumption was that the capitalist and the worker confronted each other as free persons, as independent owners of commodities, the one possessing money and the means of production, the other labour power, which is where we've been so far. But now the capitalist buys children and young persons. Previously, the worker sold his own labour, which he disposed of as a free agent, formally speaking. Now he sells wife and child. He has become a slave dealer. And this uh, actually is a very interesting shift. That is, that when the family income substitutes for the individual labor income, we get a completely different regime. And actually, Marx is talking about this in this time. This is what happened in the 1970s and 1980s. Individual incomes were going down. Family incomes were stable. Why? Because women were going out to work. And so it became family labor. And the family wage substituted for the individual wage. And capitalists have found this frequently in the past. And during this period, you hired the whole family. That is, you hired, somebody would come and look for a job, and the employer would say, well, you know, you're all very well, but how many, how many, you've got a wife, and how many kids you got, and how old are they? And the person would say, okay, I've got three kids. 
all over eight, in which case the employer would say, okay, I'll hire you at the family wage, which is not much different from what the individual wage was previously. So this question of, of, of again, the social relation which is involved, and that could happen also because machinery could be managed by children, or you could find ways within a factory to employ children in ways that were very difficult to do if you were in a workshop where there was a certain skill of using a, machine, of using a tool, because the wife and the children would not know how to use the tools. So the degree of exploitation of a labor force depends very much on these things. And there's a, a real radical effect. Now, Marx has often said he doesn't deal much with domestic labor, but there's a footnote on 518 where he does. Uh, he quotes, the numerical increase of labor, laborers has been great, to the growing substitute of female for male, and above all, of childish for adult labor. Um, and this is from Thomas Quincy. Then Marx comments, since certain family functions, such as nursing and suckling children, cannot be entirely suppressed, the mothers who have been confiscated by capital must try substitutes of some sort. Domestic work, such as sewing and mending, must be replaced by the purchase of ready-made articles. Hence, the diminished expenditure of labor in the house is accompanied by an increased expenditure of money outside. The cost of production of the working-class family, therefore, increases and balances its greater income. In addition to this, economy and judgment in the consumption and preparation of the means of subsistence become impossible. Abundant material on these facts, which are concealed by official political economy, is to be found in the reports of the inspectors of factories. So that what's going on in the domestic sphere is affected by many of these transformations that are occurring. Um, then Marx goes on to comment in the main text, machinery also revolutionizes, and quite fundamentally, the agency through which the capital relation is formally mediated, i.e. the contract between worker and capitalist. And which leads, of course, to this traffic in children. Working class parents have assumed characteristics which are truly revolting and thoroughly like slave dealing. So you abolish slavery, but then you reintroduce, it gets reintroduced uh, by the way in which children are disposed of by their parents as kind of agents in, in this industrial system. And we get a lot of kind of commentary on that. Uh, use of opiates uh, with children, moral degradation uh, that occurs uh, through the transforming immature human beings into mere machines for the production of surplus value. Uh, and then Marx has some ironic things to say about the spirit of capitalist production as incorporated in education and the factory acts and things of this kind. And the introduction of schooling uh, into... Uh, so the first impact on the working class is to suddenly say it's no longer individual labor, but family labor, which becomes significant, and the family wage, which becomes significant. Um, section B about impact, prolongation of the working day. Prolongation of the working day arrives, arises because capital wants to recuperate 
whatever capital it advances, particularly in the use of machines, as fast as possible. Uh, therefore, uh, you want to uh, prolong the working day rather than shorten it. Um, and, uh, uh, and this is an automatic mechanism in the person of the capitalist with a consciousness and will uh, who uh, uh, is going to prolong the working day in order to recuperate as much capital as they can, as fast as they possibly can, before the competition takes over. But, in, and, but he then goes on to say, in addition to the material wear and tear, a machine also undergoes what we might call a moral depreciation. It's a very weird term. It loses exchange value either because machines of the same sort are being produced more cheaply than it was, or because better machines are entering into competition with it. In both cases, however young, however, however young and full of life the machine may be, its value is no longer determined by the necessary labor time actually objectified in it, but by the labor time necessary to reproduce either it or the better machine. It has therefore been devalued. So we get this idea of devaluation uh, through competition from new and better machines or cheaper machines. Uh, in order to foreclose on that and avoid devaluation, you want the machine to be deployed for 24 hours a day. That leads into uh, the shift system, which he talks about, uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the like. Um, and this leads, in section C, into the question of the intensification of labor, uh, which is a very important thing that uh, the machine will have its... Uh, you know, the speed of the machine uh, is in the control of somebody else, and therefore you can intensify labor by simply speeding up the machinery. But here comes an interesting thing. I've argued that machines cannot produce value. But machinery produces relative surplus value. Okay, now this is contradictory premises. Machines don't produce value but machines produce relative surplus value. Because by raising the productivity in the ways we talked about in the theory of relative surplus value, the machine allows for the reduction in the value of labor power because wage goods are coming cheaper, and also for individual capitalists, a technological advantage produces uh, a relative surplus value on a temporary kind of basis, and that relative surplus value comes from having a superior machine. So machines are a source of relative surplus value, but not a source of value. Now, it's understandable that the capitalists would think they're a source of value, right? Because, in effect, when the capitalist looks at the situation, says, the machine gives me surplus value. Therefore, it's a, the machine is a source of surplus value. But Marx says, no, it's not. It's not a source of surplus value. Machines do not produce value, but it is a source of relative surplus value. And it's the relativity that is important here, because the machine produces the relativity that underpins the surplus value. So what machines produce is the relativity, and the relativity gives rise to the surplus value. Now, the reason that this is important is that, that this is the heart of some very important contradictions, which are going to be the subject of inquiry throughout capital. That you cannot produce relative surplus value, 
without transforming relations to, to, to labor. And you cannot do, and with all these implications about intensity and all the rest of it, uh, and much of this happens behind the backs of the capitalists. The capitalists are not conscious necessarily of what is going on. But what Marx is trying to do is to say, what has to happen is this, and capitalists, even though they're not conscious of it, end up doing this for certain reasons. And if they don't end up doing this, this produces a contradiction. And later on, we'll get into the idea that individual capitalists seeking to maximize the productivity are actually going to create a consequence which is going to be very negative for the reproduction of the capitalist class. So we're going to get into that contradiction further down the line. But that goes back to that comment I read much earlier about the premises are mutually interacting contradictions. And we're beginning to see some of that emerging here. Uh, Marx on 531 says, hence there is an imminent contradiction in the application of machinery to production of surplus value. Since of the two factors of the surplus value created by a given amount of capital, one, the rate of surplus value, cannot be increased except by diminishing the other, the number of workers. Now we've done a little bit of that earlier when we're talking about the rate and mass of surplus value. This contradiction comes to light as soon as machinery has become into general use in a given industry. For then the value of the machine-produced commodity regulates the social value of all commodities of the same kind. And it is this contradiction which in turn drives the capitalist, without his being aware of the fact, to the most ruthless and excessive prolongation of the working day in order that he may secure compensation for the decrease in the relative number of workers exploited by increasing not only relative but also absolute surplus labor. These are the incentives, he says, for an unbounded prolongation of the working day. Machinery, then, says, produces a surplus working population. You displace workers, you, you produce unemployment. And that surplus population, which is compelled to submit to the dictates of capital. Hence that remarkable phenomenon in the history of modern industry, that machinery sweeps away every moral and natural restriction on the length of the working day. Now, you would have thought machinery would lighten the load of labor. This is what John Stuart Mill was always going on about. He couldn't understand how machinery, which in principle should lighten the load of labor, hadn't done anything of the sort. It made the conditions of labor worse. And John Stuart Mill couldn't understand why. Marx is saying, well, it's obvious why. Hence, too, the economic paradox that the most powerful instrument for reducing labor time suffers a dialectical inversion and becomes the most unfailing means for turning the whole lifetime of the worker and his family into labor time at capital's disposal for its own valorization. Again, this is not labor uh, being introduced to a, to, to a machine which is going to lighten, lighten the load. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. And I think Marx is very astute here in sort of saying, you know, this is what the logic of the system is doing. This is what competitive capitalism necessarily does, whether the capitalist likes it or not. And certainly whether the laborer likes it or not.
This is what the labor, laborer has to revolt against. But in order to revolt against it, you just can't revolt against the fact that you know, you know, your whole lifetime is being put at capital's disposal. You've got to, you've got to revolt against the whole damn system back to its very origins. Intensification and speed up. There's something in the, in the working day which is referred to, and Marx does, deals with it here, which is porosity, the porosity of the working days. And by the porosity is meant what is, you know, empty of work. How much time do people on the shop floor spend sort of just chatting or having a cup of tea or something? The porosity of the working day, with the machine technology, you can actually control the porosity of the working day and reduce the porosity of the working day in ways that was very difficult when workers were dealing with their own tools. When workers are dealing with their own tools, they sort of stand up and stop doing what they're doing and they sharpen the blade or something like that. And they take 10 minutes sharpening the blade. I don't really need 10 minutes to sharpen the blade, but it's a way of kind of resting up and sharpening the blade. When you've got a machine, however, the machine is moving at a certain pace, and you've got to do, you've got to do, you've got to do. Charlie Chaplin world, you know, modern times, you've got to do. So you can control the intensity of work, uh, speed of the work, and all of that is no longer under the power of the laborer, it's entirely in the power of capital. So what we begin to see in these just these first early chapters is certain ways in which all these elements that he's talked about in the earlier are sort of invoked, become part of the story of what happens to the worker under conditions of machinery and factory systems. So we're looking now at the factory system, and what this is all about, and how the factory system realizes, if you like, the technological basis of what a capitalist mode of production is about. Now, next week, just to finish up, I want to skim through the rest of the chapter on machinery and large-scale industry. It's a very long chapter. And I want to spend a little time uh, on uh, chapter 16, on absolute and relative surplus value. Because uh, it puts together the whole theory of surplus, surplus value rather neatly and rather, rather, rather nicely. In going through the machinery and large-scale industry chapter, Notice carefully the chapter headings. I've already done that. Okay, we've got three chapter headings and sub-chapters. Firstly, okay, what does a machine look like physically? Secondly, how is value transferred by the machine? In the machine. Thirdly, what are the impacts on the worker? And there are three forms of the impacts on the work, worker. Uh, there's firstly the kind of question of the employment of women and children and family labor. Uh, there is secondly... Uh, the prolongation of the working day. Uh, there is thirdly, uh, 
and, and that is divided into various elements. So all of these, the, the, the chapter headings uh, and the section headings tell you a little bit, and you should merely go through and say, all right, what's going on in this section? What are we looking at here? We're looking at this, we're looking at this, we're looking at this. In the process, you're picking up certain key pieces of information. One is machines don't produce value, but they produce relative surplus value. The other is the calculus over whether to employ a machine or labor depends on how much labor you displace and by and what's the cost, what's the value of the machine versus the labor displaced by it. And that calculus then leads to certain decisions being uh, made in the market. Uh, so look at those, those elements together. So let me stop here, and we have hardly any time left. I'm sorry I've gone a bit long, but I wanted to try to consolidate this notion of what, what a historical materialist analysis is and how it works, and how it works in such a way as to pose these kinds of questions, which I find extremely, extremely useful when I kind of say, okay, if I were, when I'm writing a book like uh, Brief History of Neoliberalism, where was I coming from? This is very much in mind. And, and, and I think that you may find it useful to bear this always in mind. And I think politically also it needs to be borne in, born in mind how much you can change people's social relations without changing their mental conceptions, how much you can change all of that without changing the technologies, how are the technologies of this related to that, and what happens in the sphere, say, of social reproduction. Uh, in relationship to the new technologies of uh, social reproduction and the like, so all of these things are uh, coming, coming, coming together. And Marx insists on them being taken, taken together, even as he's saying all of the time, "Okay, I'm going to make certain assumptions here. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm not going to deal with that." But you've got to remember the big picture at the same time as he's doing the the, 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 the bits. You've got to remember the big picture, and I think the big picture of capital is really what, for me, matters. And I hope I, I one thing you'll get out of this uh, class is to think about the big picture of, uh, of capital, as opposed to you know particular propositions, which sometimes reduce capital to a set of you know discrete uh, rules. When really it's a moving kind of analysis. Uh, which I think if we deployed it today would uh, reveal you know, many of the things that Marx talks about, but a lot of other things uh, too. Okay, over to you if you want to. Any, any immediate questions? Nobody online? Oh, God, I've silenced everybody. Uh, thanks once again, David, for a fascinating uh, trip through Marx. Um, in previous weeks, you've, you've made some passing references to a future society. You did again today when you spoke about um, uh, socialism. I made the comment, well, good luck with that one because of the seven elements that sort of all needed to come together, which, which 
mutually brought about the Industrial Revolution as I understood the way you described it. So do I take it that you think from that analysis that it really is too big a prospect to ever imagine something beyond this situation or is it feasible from your reading of of Marx and of the situation and your own theorising that somehow those elements can all be brought together? Just a small question. Um, I, th I think uh, that it's possible to bring many of these elements together. I mean, if you say to me, well, you know, this is a very big task, um, my answer would be, well, yes, but it's a long-term task. And I like, I, like, I like to do the analysis of, say, the rise of neoliberalism and the transformations that have occurred under capitalism through neoliberalism and say, can you analyze that without looking at all of those seven elements and seeing how they relate to each other? Because the rise of neoliberalism was not simply, um, you know, that it's about greater freedom of the market or deregulation or something like that. It was also a change of mentalities. It was also you know, a change in the relation to nature and uh, all the rest of it, and the metabolic relation to nature and so on. So I, I, I think that we've been through, I mean, I've lived through, if you like, the way in which these different seven elements were being transformed to bring us to the point we are at today. And if that can happen over a 30 or 40 year period, then we have to think about all right, the transformation over the next 30, 40 years, which is in another direction. And you can see elements of that. I mean, you know, there are elements in the Democratic Party in this country who are beginning to sort of talk about some of the things we need, you know, might need, might need to do. But it's very difficult to do them without changing mental transformations and you know, mental conceptions. So there's a battle to be fought over mental conceptions, and there's a battle to be fought else, else, elsewhere. Uh, the problem is when a party gets and says it's all just a matter of making the right policy, and assumes the right policy is going to give, do the trick. Well, it won't do the trick. It's going to take social organising. It's going to take you know all kinds of. Things. And one of the things that I think that uh, I would hope would come out of uh, the kind of reading of Marx that I'm trying to encourage would be a recognition uh, that just because I'm talking about ideas, I, I'm, I'm talking about mental conceptions, um, you know, people often say, well, you know, you're just, you know, you're just a stupid academic who has a few mental conceptions. And I say, well, actually, the battle for mental conceptions is important, but it's not the only thing. You know, and, and, and a lot of intellectual academics think it's the only thing that matters. And it's not. It's not. It's embedded in all of these other elements. And so you've got to be talking in terms of, all right, well, what are the social relations which are occurring on the ground? And what are the social relations which are arising out of uh, an economy where the divisions of labor, we were talking about last week, the gig economy and all those kinds of things are going on. You know, we've got to, we've got to understand all, all, all of those elements, and I think that one of the one of the big problems that occurs is that somebody who's working on one aspect of this whole thing will often find themselves talking to somebody else who sort of diminishes what they're doing by saying, "Oh, that's not important. The important thing is, you know, my ideas or something like that." 
well, I, I hope I wouldn't be stupid enough ever to say that. But I would want to say, look, I think, you know, having, having some of these ideas is, is, is important and transforming people's ideas is important. And, and, and uh, you're not going to get it since most, you know, many people have been indoctrinated by a course called Economics 101 which teaches you to look at the world in a certain kind of way. And, and, and the biggest problem I've ever had, actually, in teaching Marx has been with economists who think they know how the world works. You know, and you try to say, well, no, no, Marx understands this in a different way. And they kind of go, ah, no, he doesn't know anything. You kind of say, look, name me an economic 101 textbook that actually says the struggle over the working day is important. It's not mentioned in any 101 textbook. And you kind of go, how much of the history of what's going on under capitalist struggle over, over temporality and the struggle over, 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 over working day, working life, working time? And, and you, don't, you guys don't have anything to say about it. You know? So there, there is a fight to be had. And, and, and I think it's important to wage that fight. Now, am I optimistic? And well... I don't know, on Thursdays I am, and <laughs> Fridays I, I, I thank God it's Friday and sort of have a martini or something, you know, I just hope the world will wake up and be sensible instead of acting as if it's been showered in idiot dust. So I, I uh, so, so I, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I know when, when, you, when you outline it in the way that, 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 that Marx does and I, and I'm trying to do, obviously it seems a very daunting kind of process, like, oh my God, we have to change all that kind of stuff. And you kind of go, well, yeah, but but incrementally there are many things that can be changed. That's why I raised the question of what is considered to be a reasonable object of commodification. Why is it that there are certain areas of social life and the rest of it where historically we've said that those, you know, breeding children for, for, their, for their organs is, is not something which is permissible or admissible in, in our society, even though you will find people who are do, trying to do it. And there are many issues of this kind. So if that's the case, then there are other things we can say are off-limits. I personally think healthcare should be off-limits, you know really think it should be not considered a commodity. So what you do, and so the, the whole debate, which is now sort of constantly going on in our society, what is about healthcare in this society, is I think a very important debate to be had. But we can do that by kind of saying, okay, we want, we want to keep that out of the commodity market calculus. Which is not to say it's going to be totally outside, because sometimes when you say that, people say, Oh, you think something can be completely outside? Well, uh, no, no. No, you can have actually companies producing, private companies producing, I say, medical equipment, which are then used in hospitals. But then the question is, who gets access to that? Well, that should be, not be part of the commodity calculus. In other words, there is, there is a process of, of you know, building the materials and the drugs and all this kind of stuff. And I, I don't like it that it's private, but okay, that can be private, but access to it should not be 
you know, sort of uh, decided by, 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 by market power. Access to it should be open to all. So, so you, can, you can imagine certain parts of what's going on in society which are sheltered from the commodity calculus and from exchange value. And, and that, that, that's a very simple kind of idea. And I think it's an idea that has certain resonance with people. I, I really think the, the idea that, that healthcare is a human right and access to it should not be you know, secured through the market. You know, I think that there's a lot of sympathy for that idea. And it's possible to pursue it. In which case, you are saying there's a way of getting outside of the capitalist mode of production and its, and its, and its inherent logic, and we're not. And, and, and we're able to do some of that. And we've also seen, when, when Marx is talking about the employment of women and children, yeah, okay, there's legislation that comes in and says, you know, the employment of children. Um, the first legislation that was made on working day was mainly referring to women and children. So that there is, so there, there are ways, ways uh, to go, given what Marx is saying. But the, the, the notion of, and again, something important here, the notion of a revolution, you know, is often colored by the fact of, you know, you storm the Winter Palace or you, you get to the Bastille or something like that. Well, the kind of revolutionary transformation Marx is talking about here is not of that sort. I mean, he's a great admirer of, uh, of, of some of these revolutionary movements and understood they sometimes crystallized into these moments, but, but, but the, the real long-run thing is, you know, when, he's looking, when you're looking at this, and these chapters in particular, where he's looking at the transition from cooperation and divisions of labor into the machine and factory system, you're looking at, um, looking at the Industrial Revolution. He's not talking about something that occurred overnight. This is, this, this is, this is talking about 40 years, 50 years of, of, of radical transformation from the mid-17th century onwards, mid-18th century onwards. And I think this is kind of, this is what we have to, 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 to look at. So I think the theory of revolutionary transformation in here is, is, is that it's long-term, has to encompass a lot of this, these these, these transformations that Marx is talking about, including uh, you know, mental conceptions and, and social relations and all the rest of it. So I, I think it's not uh, unreasonable to, to have people sort of think about, well, okay, where do we want to be in uh, you know, 40 years' time and what kind of process of transformation is going to go on? There is this debate going on of this sort, of course, around the, our relation to nature. And people are now saying this is a crucial kind of question. And I think, you know, we're going to see probably in the next election, this is going to be a big issue. And, and uh, again, mental conceptions. Nobody thought it was a big issue uh, 20 years ago. Now it's becoming more and more of a big issue and it's, it's emerging in mental conceptions as something that has to be, something has to be done about. But what exactly? Who knows? So I, I don't think... Uh, daunting though the whole picture is, in the sense of an individual imagining, what can I do about it? Well, the answer is you, individually, can't do much at all. Uh, but society and associated movements and so on, which are thinking about these things and so on, can do a lot. 
and and we've seen a lot done in the past in both positive and negative directions and so we'll see a lot done in the future in positive and negative directions it's that then that flow of forces that marx talks about in the working day and class forces clashing and not just, you know configurations of power sort of working together and against each other and 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 a recognition on our individual part that we live in a society where that is going on all the time and then the question arises well how do we situate ourselves in relationship to those processes and what kinds of you know arguments would we make uh, to sort of further progress towards a different kind of social order oh we are out of time i guess we're out of time so next week then we'll do the rest of the chapter on machinery but you might also think a little bit about what we've been and watch when you're in that chapter for points where these different elements pop up in the chapter because they actually all of them pop up at various points in the, in the chapter you'll, you'll 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 see when you th when you when you think about it okay so we'll do it next week <laughs>